Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone and welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talking tutors for more information. Join the Talking Tutors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a copy of The Carnival of Ash. A huge thank you to Solaris Books for sponsoring this great prize. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly talks that take place live on Zoom. Next month, I'll be chatting to Aliri Lynn about Tudor textiles and fashion. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Henry VIII and Charles V is Richard Heath. Richard was brought up in Oxford, where his love of history was encouraged by his parents and teachers. He graduated from the University of Cambridge and enjoyed teaching history, as well as taking on senior management roles at secondary schools for 35 years. Since retirement, as well as researching and producing a family history, he's written two books on the early 16th century. The first, Charles V, Duty and Dynasty, The Emperor and His Changing World, 1500 to 1558. And most recently, Henry VIII and Charles V, Rival Monarchs, Uneasy Allies. Richard also curates a website, www.emperorcharlesv.com, about Emperor Charles, and on which he posts occasional blogs about places connected to Charles V. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tudors, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you, Natalie. Yes, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. So let's start with just you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. I was born in Stoke-on-Trent, but my family moved to Oxford when I was very, very young. So we left behind 200 years of coal mining involvement, in fact. I was educated, went to school in Oxford uh, through primary and secondary schools, uh, and I always developed a love of history, always had a love of history. I remember at the age of 12, I was reading nothing but history, and my father was very concerned. And I remember saying to him, well, why would I want to read something that didn't happen? He, I, luckily, I've been cured of that, uh, and I get great pleasure from fiction as well as history now. Probably one of the most influential aspects of my early life was going camping in Italy so at the age of nine. Uh, my dad had been in Italy during the Second World War for two years and taught himself to speak Italian and always wanted to go back. And we went camping in Italy, and I absolutely loved it. And I have a very, very strong memory of sitting on a terrace of a campsite overlooking Florence with a view over the city and dad talking about the Renaissance and so on. I've been absolutely enthralled and I guess I'm still interested over 60 years later, which is brilliant. It never left me and I've always loved travelling as well as a result. After graduation, I was a history teacher for many years in secondary schools in the Cambridge area uh, and I always enjoyed doing that as well. And I just hope some of my enthusiasm rubbed off on my students. That was certainly my aim anyway. So that's that's me, basically. I retired about 10 years ago from teaching. And oh, lovely. Well, we have lots of things in common, Richard, because I'm also a teacher. I also love travelling. And I, of course, love teaching history. So there you go. So we're here to talk about your latest book, which is Henry VIII and Charles V, Rival Monarchs, Uneasy Allies. So what was the inspiration behind this particular work? Essentially, I think it was a journey that I made with my wife uh, about 11 years ago. We'd always enjoyed travelling in Britain and Europe uh, in our camper van. We're now on our third uh, over the years and visiting historic sites, cities and so on. And as we travelled more widely in Europe, whether it be in Spain, Italy, Germany, Belgium, Emperor Charles V always seemed to have been there first. There were plaques to him, there were statues, there were houses, castles, so much connected with him. And having had my interest sparked, we decided on one holiday we would actually follow a route that he took from northern Spain to his place of retirement. It was very much at the end of his life. In 1556, uh, he decided to retire, went to Spain from the Low Countries by boat, and then landed on the north coast of Spain and travelled into the remote interior of uh, Estremadura in Spain. And we we decided we'd follow that route, uh, take about two weeks doing so. And it was fascinating. It took us to some lovely remote areas of Spain and also, again, brought home all the uh, activities that he was involved in uh, during his life. That was the Charles V side of it. I got really involved in that and I talked to friends and realised none of my friends, unless they were historians, knew anything about him. Uh, about the Emperor Charles V. And I thought, well, hmm, I need to spread the word a little. And then more recently, which I did, and um, I eventually set up a a website, emperorcharlesv.com, and curate that. But more recently, I've realised that everyone knows about Henry VIII, the most well-known British monarch, I should imagine. But they didn't know anything about Charles V, and in particular, they didn't know anything about the influence that Charles V had on Henry VIII, 
and his reign and his rule of England. And I thought that is like the inspiration for the latest book, their relationship, the impact that uh, Charles V had on English history uh, in the long term. So that was the background to the book. Wonderful. Thank you. And before we talk a little bit more about their their relationship, yeah. quite a complicated mm. relationship. Um, uh, yes, indeed. Can you tell us a little bit about Charles's background and his early life? Yes, certainly. As I've said, Henry VIII must be the best known English monarch in many ways, but he was always originally, as you know, the spare. Charles V, on the other hand, was always destined to be uh, a, the ruler of large, substantial territories. He was descended from three of the leading European royal families, uh, the Dukes of Burgundy, the Habsburgs of Austria and Central Europe, and the Trastamara dynasty of Spain. And all of those uh, dynasties were concerned about establishing uh, defensive alliances, particularly to defend themselves against Spain. And obviously, as we know, in those days, alliances often were, if you like, confirmed by marriages. And the intermarriage of those three dynasties, if you like, all came together in Charles V. His grandparents um, in Spain, it was Isabella and Ferdinand, the well-known so-called Catholic monarchs of Spain, whose um, marriage brought together all of the main kingdoms of Spain, and they completed the Reconquista, uh, driving out the last Muslim rulers of Granada and removing Muslim influence in Spain, which had been there for 700 years. Um, they had five children, uh, including Joanna, who was Charles's mother, and, of course, her sister, Catherine of Aragon, hence the immediate link with Henry. She was obviously so important in determining part of their relationship. His other grandparents were Maximilian, the Emperor Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, and his wife, Mary of Burgundy. Um, she died young, and from her, he was going to inherit the Low Countries, what's now Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg. Uh, and they had two children, one of which, Philip, was Charles's father. So from his mother, Spain, from his father, the Low Countries, and the Habsburg lands uh, of Central Europe. So he was always destined. But there was one consideration. Obviously, in those days, many people, including royalty, died very young. After all, Henry VIII's brother, Arthur, died young. And in Charles's case, his mother's two elder siblings both died, which meant that his mother was going to if you like, inherit the Spanish territory and Castile. And Charles's father died at a young age as well, when Charles was only six. Uh, and so from that time, he was destined to inherit vast areas. That's an Im impressive pedigree, isn't it? That's very impressive. Indeed. Yes, it was. <laughs> so taking all those lands together, yeah. he did upruling the Low Countries, Spain, the Habsburg lands in Central Europe. And of course, he was eventually elected to be Holy Roman Emperor, which was an elective post. Yes, I don't think Henry liked that very much, that last no, no, <laughs> election. Well, I was going to mention that later, yes. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert. In terms of their education, Richard, yeah. were they, did they have a similar sort of education and, and upbringing, would you say? Mm, yes, I was very interested in listening to your podcast with um, Amy McElroy, who was talking about Tudor education recently. Yes. And yes, effectively, and in many ways, they did have a similar education. But I think there's an important point to make first is that Charles, he was born in Ghent in what's now Belgium in 1500, and he saw very little of his parents. Both his parents moved around the Low Countries, as is 
like the role of the ruler to be seen in cities and so on. But they also travelled to Spain twice during his youth. And his father died in Spain, as I've said, when Charles was six. And his mother, Joanna, basically remained there. She is known to history as Joanna La Loca, Joanna the Mad, of which there must be quite a bit of dispute, in fact. She was always said to be incapable of ruling. And certainly she showed signs after her husband died. She travelled round Spain with his body, would not leave his body for a couple of years, until eventually her father had her, as I say, kept in a convent at Tordesillas uh, in, in Spain, uh, f- quote, for her own safety. And remarkably, she remained there for another 45 years under her father and later under Charles. In effect, she was prevented from using the power as queen. She was officially queen of Castile, and yet she was given no power by either her father or a husband, or luckily her son. So Charles basically had very little to do with his parents. He lived in the Low Countries until the age of 17, when he first went to Spain to be uh, recognised as king in Spain. Therefore, his education, unlike Henry's, um, who his Henry's mother and his father did have quite a bit of influence on Henry's education. Charles's education was very much under the guidance uh, first of his aunt, his father's sister, uh, Margaret of Austria, and then also William of Croy, Lord Chev, uh, who was a leading nobleman in the Low Countries. They actually had two slightly different sort of emphasis of what was important for his education. For Margaret, the importance was the dynasty, the Habsburg dynasty, and the wider European context. For Sheriff, it tended to be focusing on advancing the benefits of the Low Countries. So there was a clash between the two in his sort of teenage years as he was being brought up. But I think the important thing was that they both determined to provide him with a good education and enable him to be an efficient ruler. Uh, Sherv actually wrote, I do not want him to be incapable because he has not understood affairs nor been trained to work. And I think generally most people would accept that he succeeded in that aim. Charles generally regarded as being very diligent, conscientious uh, in his approach to his work. Uh, One example of that, for instance, it's estimated that in the 40 years in which he was really in power, he spent one in four days travelling. Uh, because of his uh, lands so spread out, inevitable in a way, but a quarter of his days were spent travelling. Pretty remarkable. Probably the most travelled monarch uh, until the modern era, when people could actually get around <laughs> rather yes. more easily. When he travelled from, say, Vienna back to Madrid, it took six months. We can do it, what, three hours? Amazing difference. So what was Charles like? In his youth, certainly, he was not a particularly striking figure. He was said to have a pale complexion, a large protruding lower jaw. He's often well, you can see that in his portraits. Yes, yeah. uh, and people assumed at first glance that he was probably not very promising material, either physically or mentally. I think it's likely that his appearance made him shy and reserved. And that shyness and reserve, I think, gave the appearance to people who didn't know him that he might be either sort of dull and apathetic. But I think that's a mistake. He certainly applied himself to both his academic studies and the other attributes required of a prince at the time. 
um, absorbing the values of, of chivalry and knightly behaviour. When when his aunt Margaret wrote to Maximilian, his grandfather, who was nominally supervising his education at the time, um, when Charles was nine, she wrote, Charles takes such pleasure in hunting. And Maximilian responded that it was only to be expected. And if he hadn't done so, quote, people would think he was a bastard. Yeah. It was what was expected of uh, at that time. It, it worked because by the time he was 21, sort of just been elected Holy Roman Emperor and so on, the papal envoy to his court uh, wrote back to the Pope saying, this prince is gifted with good sense and prudence far beyond his years, and indeed has, I believe, much more in his head than appears on his face. Uh, I think that's a lovely quote, uh, and I think that does sum up Charles. He tended not to be showy uh, and extravagant unless... It was for a political purpose. In his personal life, yeah, he enjoyed eating and he enjoyed drinking, undoubtedly, but he was generally regarded as being rather dour in many ways. Um, but he was thinking, what were they educated in? Well, Henry and Charles did have a very similar education. I've drawn the distinction between you know, the impact of the parents. But in terms of what they learned and what they imbibed, I think it was really similar. It was expected royalty, royal houses of the time were expected to have a similar kind of education. And the Renaissance humanist education linked to the medieval chivalry uh, and the code of uh, chivalry that was so still important at the time, although I suspect dwindling to some extent at then. So to the grammar, the rhetoric, the history and philosophy were added, uh, the maths, the languages, the music, that was all there. It emphasised also the virtues uh, considered to be necessary for the monarch's honour, key word, I think, in, in this. The devotion to the Christian faith, prudence, fair dispensation of justice, generosity as a patron, and of course, bravery on the battlefield and in adversity. I think we can make our own minds up. We have to make our own minds up whether Henry and Charles actually fulfilled those qualities in the end. And I think we probably have a lot of different opinions about them, but they were the ones that were aimed at. Martial skills, horsemanship, hunting, jousting, very much encouraged. Both monarchs looked up to the in their youth to the knights at court, maybe 10 years older than them, those who had achieved in those areas of, of chivalry. Uh, and those people often became their early advisors, uh, early military commanders in, in the years of their, their government. Both met leading scholars of the day. Erasmus, for instance, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who uh, was taken to meet Henry when Henry was about eight or nine at Eltham Court by Sir Thomas More. Erasmus also wrote the book, The Education of the Christian Prince, in 1516, dedicated to Charles. Henry was also sent a copy of the book. Uh, so they had a lot in common. And I really particularly like the quote, in that book uh, that was uh, sent to both of them, conduct your own rule as if you were striving to ensure that no successor could be your equal. But at the same time, prepare your children for their future so as to ensure that a better one would indeed succeed you. I think that, that'd be great. Yeah, that's the, wonderful. Really important of education uh, as it was seen at the time. And so in many ways, they had similar, Charles and Henry had similar education although their backgrounds were pretty different. 
Yes, thank you for painting that picture. That's that's wonderful. Now, how about we we talk a little bit now about their relationship? In yeah, the, sure. Maybe if we sort of focus on the early 16th century, just to to narrow it down a little, a little bit. What yeah. was it like? Well, in many ways, because their education they had a lot in common, they also had personal ties, of course. But before we go on to that, I think we do need to stress and emphasise that the relationship between any monarchs in the early 16th century was essentially based on rivalry. They were rivals for honour and status amongst other European uh, rulers. They wished the respect of their fellow rulers. That also, of course, improved their status at home as well. If they could be seen as leading in Europe, then understandably, as is still the case, the general population actually quite liked their ruler being seen as of high status. So that was the background to their relationship. Of course, they, as I say, they did have very close family ties. In 1509, Henry married Catherine of Aragon, you know, who was Charles's aunt. And that's obviously going to be pretty central to much of their relationship. So that personal link was there. Also, Charles was for six years betrothed to Henry's younger sister, Mary, uh, between 1508 and 1514. He was due to marry Mary. And it was only a, if you like, a collapse in a relationship, a short-term collapse in relationship that ended that. So they might have been even closer. They might have been brothers-in-law as well as their relationship with Catherine of Aragon. So a personal link was certainly important. They only they met four times in their lives, nearly all in the early part of the period. They first met in 1513. Charles was only 13, but Henry at the time had just had what he considered to be a great triumph in Europe. The, the year before, in 1512, he had sent an army to South Western France to try and grab some land or, in his eyes, take back land that was duly his and met with great failure. So the following year, Henry himself led an army from Calais, English possession in the north of France, into northern France and captured the towns of Theranou and Tournai. And after that, he met Charles, who came along with his aunt, uh, Margaret, uh, and they spent several days together. Charles, being only 13, pretty much on the periphery, but it was their first meeting and they were both really suitably impressed. I think it was said by Henry in his court that Charles, they were, they were impressed and pleased by Charles's what they call quiet dignity. So again, on the quiet side, but you know, dignified and certainly sort of standing up for his status. Charles, on his part, was very much impressed with the victorious Henry, who was just very pleased with himself, having had this victory. It wasn't that to be that long-lasting, actually, but uh, he did impress Charles in the same way. And this is an interesting sort of fact that's sometimes forgotten, but in the same way that Henry himself had been very impressed when he met Charles's father about nine years before. Because Charles's father, Philip of Burgundy, was... In, in many ways, as a classic Renaissance prince, he had all the, the qualities, or many people thought he had all the qualities uh, of a Renaissance prince. And Henry had been seriously impressed by Philip when Philip was in England, just not long before his death, in fact. And in the same way, Charles was very impressed with Henry for pretty much the same reasons. So you're a close relationship here. And yet there's good reason to think that. Uh, their next meetings took place in 2020. 
sorry, 1520. And uh, in that year, probably the best known meeting is the meeting between Henry and the King of France, Francis I, at the Field of Cloth of Gold. Always, whenever I drive out of Calais, I must admit, hopefully I'll be doing so later this year, I go past the sign that says, the site of the meeting of the Field of Cloth of Gold, about 10 miles outside Calais, and it was pretty spectacular. But it was more a show. Nothing really was achieved. Henry and Francis sort of bristled up against each other, showed their rivalry, showed their chivalry and so on. But actually, in terms of political negotiations, nothing was achieved. Whereas in this, either side of that meeting, just before and just after Charles and Henry met, and I suspect a lot more was achieved in terms of planning for the future. Just before the Field of Cloth of Gold, Charles uh, landed at Dover, he was actually on his way back from Spain to the Low Countries. He landed briefly at Dover, met Henry, was able to meet his aunt, Catherine of Aragon, and they agreed that they would meet again within the month, which they did on the French coast, just outside Calais, um, about a month later. And I think those meetings, far more important, they laid the seeds of their first alliance that was going to take place shortly after. So they're the first three meetings, and the fourth meeting we'll come to later, which was when Charles actually came to England uh, in a state visit for six weeks. Their relationship in the early days was close, but we always have to remind, remember, remind ourselves that these things can change. <laughs> Political realities will undoubtedly uh, move things on. But I think at the starting point, there was a lot between them, and, and also... England and Charles had uh, many reasons, other reasons to be well, pretty much on the same side. For instance, a lot of England's trade at the time was with the Low Countries, Belgium, Netherlands, which Charles ruled. Any disruption of that trade was going to cause big problems for England. Uh, and certainly in the late 1520s, that's exactly what did happen. Uh, there was a lot of disruption of the trade and a lot of unhappiness in England. So economically, it was in Henry's interests to yes, uh, keep yeah. up the relations, undoubtedly. And the other factor, of course, was that England had the capability of invading France from Calais, but any chance of England invading Charles's other lands were pretty slim. I mean, an, an invasion of Spain, for instance, from England, pretty unlikely, very, very difficult. We saw it in reverse in 1588 with the Armada. Yes. Yes. Um, not going to happen. And as I say, with the trading links, no one in England was going to be in favour of you know, invading the Low Countries. So, yeah, their links are going to be pretty close. That probably leads on to the second issue of the, the rivalries. Yes, I mentioned. yes, I was just going to say. Um, Tell us yeah, a little bit about the rivalries now. <clears throat> the... The rivalries were major. I mean, you, know, you can't overestimate like, the importance of those rivalries. But probably the major one in Europe at the time didn't involve Henry. It probably involved, it certainly involved Charles and the Habsburgs and the French royal family, the Valois, who from 1515 were led by Francis I. That's one of the things I find fascinating about this particular period is you've got three European monarchs, Henry VIII, Charles, uh, Charles V and Francis I, all contemporaneous, ruling their countries for 30 years together. So obviously any relationship between them is vital. And of course, we mustn't forget the Ottoman Empire in the, in the east, which was expanding under uh, Suleiman. And he was almost the same period of time, had these four monarchs 
who were always in rival positions. Probably the main one was between the Habsburgs and the Valois. Their claims to, for instance, Italy, major, they both claimed Naples and the southern Italy. They both had claims to Milan in the north of Italy. And the French had uh, tried to take Milan several times, had lost it. But then on Francis I's accession in 1515, he decided he was going to go for it. And he captured Milan. This, instead, was the same year that Charles first became the sort of active Duke of Burgundy. They're, they're coming to power pretty much at the same time. Charles, being six years younger, was probably in no position to do anything about it at the time, but he was always going to, I mean, have a note, I'm going to take that back when I get the opportunity. So that rivalry you know, always existed there, and it was always going to. And, of course, the other main rivalry that, for our purposes, would be the Anglo-French rivalry. I mean, we all know a Hundred Years' War, and so on, uh, which were, if you ask people in Britain, who's Britain's position or enemy, France, uh, whatever reason. English claim, English kings claims the French throne, essentially, with the issue, had done since you know, the early Middle Ages. And in fact, of course, monarchs, early monarchs like Henry II had ruled large areas of France. Henry V had been crowned king of France, although had never actually put it into effect. So those claims, Henry VIII, of course, was pretty keen to reignite. And that, of course, reignited the rivalry between England and France. So with those two traditional rivals, um, when these monarchs were just coming to power, well, set the scene. There was one, if you like, almost situation where peace reigned. In 1518, the Treaty of London actually brought the monarchs of Europe, or Christian Europe, shall I say, together, initially by the Pope, but it was kind of hijacked by Cardinal Wolsey and made a kind of English deal, uh, which promoted Henry as the great peacemaker of Europe. And they were brought together to resist challenge of the Ottoman Empire, who were expanding into Eastern Europe and beginning to threaten Hungary uh, and even a little later into Austria. So they were brought together. But uh, unfortunately for the situation, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian died in January 1519. He was Charles's grandfather. Charles was pretty determined he was going to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. Um, it had been in the Habsburg family for what, three generations, and he wasn't going to be the one to let it slip in that respect. He, I think he said to someone that uh, it was you know, the most important thing we could possibly uh, think he was going to be it. Now, of course, his rival monarchs had different ideas. Francis I certainly put his name forward and was encouraged to do so, mainly by the electors. The Holy Roman Emperor was elected by seven electors at the time, and they had a vested interest in it being a disputed election. Uh, why? Bribes. The more dispute there was, the bigger bribes they could expect. If there was just one candidate, well, that wasn't going to work for them. They sort of encouraged Francis to put his name forward, uh, which he did. Even Henry VIII enjoyed yes. the idea. He certainly sent ambassadors to areas of Europe to try and build up his support. But well, honestly, I don't think he had the money uh, to, to do so. On the other issue, there were some people in England who were very concerned about the idea because England had never been part of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, if the English king becomes Holy Roman Emperor, 
then the implication is that England is part of the Holy Roman Empire. Implications for the future, <laughs> if Henry were to do that, died, a new emperor is elected, what powers do they have over England? So they're definitely unclear what would have happened. But Henry, in reality, was, wasn't a, a real, realistic candidate. It wasn't going to happen. And in the end, Charles was elected uh, unanimously. The force of money from German bankers, particularly the Fuga family, uh, who provided something like 800,000 crowns uh, for it. The election. In fact, um, Jacob Fuga later wrote to Charles when he was trying to get some of his money back and actually said, um, along the lines of, your, your, your Majesty knows that he wouldn't have been elected if it hadn't been from me. Yeah, please give me money back. Which, actually, I always try to imagine, what, what would Henry have done had he had a letter like that? I don't think he'd have been that pleased. In fact, Charles actually didn't seem to react badly to it, possibly because he still wanted more money to borrow. Uh, all these monarchs were permanently in debt, of course. Um, they were all desperate for, for cash, particularly in a war situation. That election wrecked the peace situation. It had been building up. Uh, and it was pretty obvious from then on that there was going to be you know, war. And wars were most likely going to be between Charles and Francis I of France. Now that, of course, gave Henry VIII an opportunity. If you see it as a, a triangle, you yes. could see that... Who does Henry support would be important. Although I think we have to bear in mind another issue. Um, whereas Charles's lands had a population of, well, possibly 30 million people spread around Spain, the Low Countries, Germany, probably more. France had a population of 15 million. So their resources, potentially, if they could get the taxes out of their people, were substantial. England's population at the time, what, Three million, three and a half million at most. So in terms of resources, Henry did not have the same clout the other two monarchs did. So I think that's important to bear in mind. And actually possibly one of the most impressive things about Henry VIII is that he, in my view, he got England punching above its weight considerably yeah. Yeah. Uh, during his reign. They were given that disparity of resources that were available to them. They were the rivalries, and that was the sort of situation by about 1520. So. Absolutely. That's so fascinating. And you mentioned there you were talking about um, one of the visits that Charles V made, yes. and yep. that's quite a long visit, a six-week visit. Oh, yes, so it was. Yes, it was. Sounds fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular mm -hmm. state visit? Yeah, sure. It was the prelude to an alliance between the two. It had effectively been arranged but hadn't been formally signed. And in 1522, Charles was already at war with Francis I and was very keen to get Henry on board. Henry was almost certainly going to move that way. Although I wouldn't want to sort of say that English politics was basically a straightforward choice between the two. There were other ways of Henry getting, or Wolsey getting for Henry, shall I say, really, honour, glory and so on. You could just achieve it by being the peacemaker. You could also achieve it by going to war. The problem was, of course, you had to choose the right side if you went to war. You wouldn't want to end up on the losing side. Equally, if you left it too late um, and prevaricated and tried to get the best deal you could off, off one or other, if one side got the upper hand before you made your deal, then you were no longer needed. So it was a balancing act. In a way, Charles's visit to Henry in England uh, in May, June, July of 1522 was just that. He was 
pulling Henry over to his side. He sailed from Calais over to Dover, had 2,000 people with him. He'd said before that he didn't need lots of people travelling with him, but then arrived with an entourage of 2,000. Although I think we have to bear in mind that he was actually, after he'd been in England, he was going off to Spain. So in effect, his whole court was moving. So probably explains it. But it's reckoned he had perhaps 200 noblemen with him, 100 officers and 1,700 servants, whether they be clerks, valets, grooms and so on. One of these had to be put up in England. Um, they landed in Dover and um, Henry was at Canterbury at the time, rode to Dover to meet him, uh, showed off his fleet in the uh, in the harbour of Dover, and the famous ships, uh, the Henry Grace of God and Mary Rose uh, were kind of inspected. And then they had a three-day journey from, from Dover, first, first Canterbury, where, again, Charles uh, worshipped at the tomb of Thomas Beckett, uh, and then they moved on to Greenwich, Greenwich Palace, where the court, Henry's court, was awaiting them, where Catherine of Aragon, Henry's wife, um, Princess Mary, who had been, of course, betrothed to Charles, but that had fallen apart about several years before. And, of course, there was the young Princess Mary, Henry's daughter. And there they had a week of, basically, festivities, whether it be feasting, jousting, and so on. In fact, on the second jousting day, in the morning of that day, they were preparing for the jousts, and a messenger arrived from France, and Henry immediately sent messages, Charles, come over, you've got to hear what's been said. And Francis had basically sent messages to Henry, just rejecting all of his demands. It was Henry demanded that, that Francis stop making war on Charles, that Francis would pay him the debts that he owed to England, because at this time it was quite normal for one country to pay another country pension, more pensions. Some were to individuals, some were to the country as a whole. And Henry was a pretty adept at using any gains that he made to you know, squeeze money out of France. And they were just turned down. Francis was not going to pay them. And in effect, at that point, it was pretty clear that Henry was going to join the war on Charles's side. But the the, um, the visit went on for several more weeks. Um, it went on to London, the grand uh, entrance to London, a uh, spectacular affair. They they rode up to the, the London Wall. Uh, they changed into identical clothes, Henry and Charles, identical clothes to show their unity. Oh, it's pretty amazing. And then there's grand processions through London. And uh, certainly London had gone to town, or rather Henry had ordered London to go to town. There was some dispute about who's going to pay for it all, because Londoners were basically told they were going to pay for it all, and so many of them quite late in paying their money, and they had to be sort of squeezed out of them. The street from London Bridge, procession through to St Paul's Cathedral, there were nine ceremonial arches, archways, gateways that had been set up, and they were pretty spectacular. There's a description of just one here um, on Cheapside consisted of two gateways supporting a square structure of four towers that were connected by galleries decorated with gold and silver cloth bearing coats of arms of emperors and the kings of England. The galleries were filled with musicians and singers. As the monarchs approached, a large rose was lowered and it opened up. A girl holding two roses stepped out to hand the white rose to Charles and the red rose to Henry. Uh, they then followed verses praising the emperor and the defence of Christendom. And this was just one of nine um, wow. of, of these 
pageants that uh, took place as the procession went through. That was obviously followed by visits to, the, to St Paul's Cathedral, prayers and so on. They then continued after a week in London. Uh, they moved on to Suffolk, Richmond, Hampton Court, ending up at Windsor. And all the way on that journey, hunting was taking place uh, as entertainment. And it was at Windsor that the hard work was done. Uh, and you see the treaty was signed and, and the details finalised. And then uh, Charles moved on to uh, Winchester, where he was feasted in front of Arthur's round table, which had been specially decorated for the occasion, repainted for the occasion. Uh, and then he left on July the 5th on to Spain. So the six weeks there was yeah, a very big state visit, big deal. Strangely, that was the last time they ever met. Uh, which you think Henry ruled for another 25 years <laughs> and they never met again. So from this fine relationship they seem to have had early on in their careers, never quite got there again uh, for reasons, obviously, that we'll come to. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like quite a visit. That the uh, oh, it was, the entry yes. into London is was akin to sort of, sort of a coronation pageant, wasn't it? That's you know. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely, it was. Yes, I mean, and some of the plays that were put on very very political in their yes, content. Yeah. And at uh, at Windsor, apparently, a play on on Sunday evening. It had three main characters: friendship, prudence, and might. And these three characters worked together to tame an unwild, an, an unruly horse. A wild, unruly horse represented France, basically, and and friendship, prudence, and might represented for England and, and the Empire, Spain, uh, working together against their enemy. I want to mention, of course, that Henry himself very pleased at the time because he had not long been given the title by the Pope, the Defender of the Faith, which another thing they had in common, we've talked so far without mentioning religion very much, but certainly um, both were traditional supporters of the Catholic Church at that time. Charles, as the Holy Roman Emperor, regarded himself as one of the twin pillars of Christendom, Emperor and Pope. Francis I had the title, the traditional French king's title, of Most Christian King. Henry was really annoyed that he didn't have a similar title, but in 1521 he was made Defender of the Faith, which of course is still on, the DF is still on English coins and British coins, by essentially reward for writing a book criticising Martin Luther and, and the ideas that were being put forward in Europe against the Catholic Church or demanding changes uh, in the Church. Henry and Charles were united that they were against those. In fact, all through the procession that took place, there was a a section where it basically called them. On each street, there was a plaque which basically said in Latin, Henry and Charles live, defenders both, Henry of the faith, Charles of the church. Very strong emphasis on that, on the unity that they had. Talking about the unity, we've talked about this particular mm. alliance. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other, because this wasn't obviously the only alliance they made, even though they didn't see each other again. So yes. what other alliances did they enter right. into? Right. Well, they had the alliance of 1522, in which certain damning words spoken against the French. They really went to town against the French. The statement being the Treaty of Windsor, which is the treaty that was signed, really a blistering criticism of France. They criticised some Christian princes. Instead of employing their forces in repelling the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, are only trying to gain advantage by the troubles. The King of France is the worst of them and gives a bad example of the troubles. So there was this alliance in 1522. 
it eventually went wrong. We can discuss later. The only other major alliance that Charles and Henry had together came in the mid-1540s, so 20 years later. Between them, a lot had happened. But once again, that 1540s alliance was against the French. Henry led, for the last time, led another invasion of France. Charles led an invasion from the east. Henry from the north, from Holland. And together, they did actually um, France under a great deal of pressure. Um, but again, it fell apart. Um, but I'd like to talk about the reasons why it fell apart, why both alliances fell apart, perhaps a bit later. And I think maybe now is a good time to, to talk a little bit about the sort of late 1520s and the 1530s. Yes. So, yep, so sure. why was Charles V able to have such a, a major say in blocking Henry's annulment from Catherine of Aragon, his first wife. And yeah, what implications yeah. did this have for England and obviously for their relationship as well? Very, very important aspect. Bearing in mind, we all know Henry's, I suspect we all know Henry's story. No son, wanted a son. Catherine of Aragon ageing. She was quite a few years older than Henry. I should mention that when she married Arthur, Henry's brother, he had been very taken with her, Henry. Henry, at the age of 10, had been very struck by this beautiful young lady, if you like. And uh, when they married, it was a, a, I think a genuine love there, no question. It was a long-lasting marriage. But by the mid-1520s, he had no son. And Henry, that was central. And he wished, as we know, to have his marriage annulled, to remarry, in, in particular, Anne Boleyn. The exact time at which Henry put forward to the Pope uh, and, and claimed for the annulment of the, his marriage was the exact time that Charles V's troops had just invaded Italy and carried out the sack of Rome. The sack of Rome, three-day or four-day, five-day sort of savaging of Rome in the wars, in the Italian wars between Charles and Francis, in which Charles was getting the upper hand. Rome had been taken by Charles's troops. There was absolutely no way the Pope was going to agree to annulling Henry's marriage with Charles's aunt. Charles basically said, it's not going to happen. It would have been a complete insult to his family. And you know, as far as he was concerned, it was a non-starter. And he made it absolutely clear to Pope Clement that it was not going to happen. And the fact that the Italian wars ended with, in effect, Charles being the dominant power in Italy, meant that that situation continued um, for many years. It wasn't going to happen. So... On the one hand, we had Henry, who couldn't see any reason why it shouldn't happen. His his sister had just been granted an a, a divorce from her husband. His sister Margaret, who had married initially the King of Scotland, uh, and her second marriage after the death of the King of Scotland, was annulled. Others, Duke of Suffolk, uh, Charles Brandon, he had had a marriage ended um, by Pope, papal decree so that he could marry Charles um, Henry's sister. Mary. As far as Henry was concerned, he couldn't see why there should be a problem, other than the fact that Charles V controlled the Pope and it wasn't going to happen. So in that sense, Charles's power was very, very substantial. The Pope tried to play a clever game. Pope Clement, um, who was one of the Medici family, as far as he was concerned, he didn't want Charles Francis or Henry to be dominating yes. Italy. Um, I think his quote was something like, he, the, the people in Italy didn't want the cock to crow or the eagle to land. The cock crowing being 
France, the Eagle Landing being Habsburgs. They didn't want either of it, but they didn't have much say in it. But he tried to play a clever game, playing one off against the other. He prevaricated. He didn't come to the immediate decision that, no, I'm not going to give you an annulment. Neither did he say, yes, you can have it. And he hoped to play one off against the other. But I think most people knew at the time that he was never going to actually agree to it. And it took him, I think, six years, as we know, much doing and throwing hearings in England, hearings in Rome, uh, before he came out with the decision that, no, Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was perfectly straightforward and, and legal, and there was nothing wrong with it, and therefore no annulment was going to happen. Which, of course, at the time, Henry said, well, we know, he said, okay, I'm leaving the Catholic Church. You know, we're breaking away. I'm going to marry Amberlynn anyway, and uh, in an effect, reject any influence, any power that uh, the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, has in England. Of course, that didn't necessarily mean he changed his religious beliefs. I mean, I'm sure we understand Henry's Reformation was far more a political one than a religious one in the first instance, although religious changes did develop later. Yeah. So that influence that Charles had, I could argue, would be that it was Charles that effectively created the Church of England because he put Henry in a position where he had no choice. He was always going to do it. Yeah, that's um, an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yes, it is. And that, that effect that's you know, had such an impact on English history and British history ever since. And, of course, it had a major impact on relationship between Charles and Henry, whereas before you could see all the reasons why they could work together. Now there's pretty much every reason why they wouldn't, um, because it had become personal. And therefore, the likelihood of any more alliances, certainly in the immediate future, disappeared. Hence, the second alliance that they had wasn't until the 1540s, by which a lot more had happened. Catherine of Aragon had died, of course in 1536, and Charles's rivalry with Francis had developed again, and once again, the same pattern of events occurred uh, again. So you talked about that triangle before between, you know, yes. Francis, Charles, and, yeah. and Henry. And, yeah. and of course, Henry was fearful that there'd be a Franco-Habsburg alliance. Yeah. And yes. you, you mentioned, obviously, the, the huge population of, of Charles's yeah. empire and France compared yeah. to, to England. So yeah. what were some of the other reasons why Henry was so fearful of this particular alliance? Well, if you say it as a triangle in simple terms, it was all very well Henry to be deciding to support Charles or to support Francis, but he was very much aware if they could ever get together, then they would be, could, could potentially be a major threat to England and his position. Of course, Francis I had every reason to object to Henry and perhaps even remove Henry because Henry was constantly claiming his throne. And, and Charles V had this more personal reason now and increasingly religious reason why Henry ought to be removed. Henry became regarded as heretic. The Pope, it wasn't by that time Clement who had died, was his successor, his successors, I should say, were constantly calling for some kind of crusade against England. English religious leaders who you know, didn't agree with Henry. We know that some were executed, but others removed themselves from England. Cardinal Pole, for instance, left England, lived in France, lived in Rome. He was constantly encouraging both rulers, Francis and Charles, to get together to lead the campaign against England, to bring England back to the true faith. So Henry had every reason to be concerned about that. On the other hand, 
I think he might have known in the back of his mind that the chances of Francis and Charles really trusting each other enough to get together might have been not as strong as some people feared. Obviously, it served Henry's purpose well to have the English population worried. The fear of invasion is a a great thing for a leader as it helps bring people together against the external enemy. But I suspect that Henry, in his heart of hearts, knew that Francis and Charles were most unlikely to trust each other for long enough to actually achieve anything against England. Because if one or other were sort of immediately involved in war with England, well, the other one was going to take the opportunity while their major opponent was distracted. So I think it might not have been as real as some people think. Although Henry did take action, I mean, in, in, for instance, in 1539, he um, moved against any opponents in England. I mean, the the family of Cardinal Pole were arrested, interrogated, executed. They were a threat. They were relatives of his as well, we have to bear in mind. They were cousins, and they were possible you know, alternative monarchs for England if a crusade did take place. The other thing that Henry did was to build more fortifications around the south coast of England. He had a massive survey of the English coastal defences done, probably the biggest survey ever done of the South English coast, to identify all possible places of invasion where landings could take place and you know, fortify them, um, build defences to prevent that. So a lot was done, but in reality, I'm not absolutely convinced that it would ever, could ever have taken place. Although in politics, you never actually say never. You know, there was always the risk, I suppose, that yeah. something might happen, that they might, for a year or two, be able to trust each other to get together to invade England. So I can see why Henry VIII had to take precautions. Yes, yeah. Uh, and he had, it had advantages for him as well, that fear of invasion in the country as a whole. Because however popular or unpopular he might be, his popularity would certainly increase given an outside threat. And I have one more question for you. This has been right. such an interesting discussion. One more question and about Charles, actually, Charles V. So what, what succession issues did Charles V right. face? All right, yeah. He, ruling such a vast territory... For 40 years, which is what he did, he took the unusual step of retiring. That, and in a way, that's one of the things that really intrigued me about Charles V, that he was somebody who was able in the end to step down, step yes, back from yeah. power. You do not see that very often at all. And in 50, well, by 1550, you go back a little, by 1553, he was in a real state in a real difficult position. He had a lot of hostility to him within the Holy Roman Empire. A lot of it was religious-based. A lot of it was princes within the Holy Roman Empire using religion as an opportunity to increase their own powers and reduce the powers of the emperor. In fact, in and slightly earlier, he had nearly been captured by a Protestant army led by Maurice of Saxony, who later, when asked, why didn't you capture him? You had the opportunity. He said, I haven't got a cage big enough to hold a bird so big. Uh, in other words, he was afraid of what he could have done. Had he captured Charles, what would he then do um, with this very powerful ruler? So Charles is in a very difficult position. He was also still at war with France. He had taken part in the siege of Metz, a major siege, which failed. And in 1553, Charles, in many ways, had a sort of breakdown. No, he was said to be mentally and physically 
incapable of government for several months. And his sister, Mary, who was his governor regent, if you like, in the Low Countries, um, in effect, ruled, ruled in his place. I think it's very interesting to see you know, his sisters played a large role in, in his life. Um, Mary had been his regent in the Low Countries for over 20 years. His eldest sister, Eleanor, actually married Francis I um, as one of the deals that they made. But in 1553, Charles had this breakdown. And I think then he decided that at some point, when possible, he could step back from power. He wasn't really able to do that until 1556, when he arranged that, that his son Philip would take over in Spain. But there was always the issue, who was going to become our next Holy Roman Emperor? Well, in a way, that had been decided 20 years before. He had made his brother, uh, Ferdinand, the king of the Romans, which in effect is the next Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, it had been agreed. So when Charles stepped down, his brother automatically became Holy Roman Emperor. big debate was who would follow him? Because Charles initially assumed that it would be his brother's family, if you like. But as he got older, he began to think, well, actually, I want Philip to, I want my son to. And you can imagine that not go down particularly well with his brother's family. And although I'm always, I've always been impressed how little family feuding there was within the Habsburgs at that time, this was probably the only occasion when there was a major, major issue between them. I mean, if you look at other royal families, it seems to be feuding going on right, left and centre. But if there was feuding, most of the time, they kept it under wraps. They could deal with it internally. But on this occasion, um, there was a real problem because Charles was now saying he wanted Philip to eventually become Holy Roman Emperor, as well as be King of Spain, as well as being ruler of the Low Countries. In other words, do what he was doing. But Ferdinand, his brother, and his son, Maximilian, were saying, no chance, that is not going to happen. After all, they were the ones that had been in Germany for most of the time. Ferdinand, his brother, had in effect been his regent in, in the Holy Roman Empire all the times that he was in Spain, in the Low Countries, in other areas. So they spoke German, they were known by the, the princes there. They were going to be accepted. So the succession issues were, how was this going to be resolved? And once again, I think his sister Mary played a large part in that. And they came to a deal where, in fact, Philip would rule Spain, and it was eventually accepted he would rule the Low Countries as well. Hence, you know, that's the Spanish Netherlands and so on. But it agreed that in the Holy Roman Empire, well, Ferdinand would become emperor, and then it would be Philip, but after Philip, it would go back to Ferdinand's family. A bit complicated, but it never, it was signed, but it never took place. It was always going to be Ferdinand's family in the end. And eventually, I think Charles accepted that. And on his retirement, he retired to his monastery in Spain, in Estremadura in Spain. And um, he lived the last 18 months of his life there totally just contemplating his fate and contemplating his afterlife. He still had some involvement. They, people still kept him informed of what was going on. He was still, although he wasn't ruling anymore, he was still head of the family. So family disputes and sense still came to him and so on. But um, in terms of succession, Charles's lands were in effect divided. And you know, again, a monarch that is able to step back and retire and then see his lands divided, quite remarkable. But I don't think he had much choice about the latter. It was too big a job for anybody. Yeah. I think he, he recognised that it was too big a job. Even though 
holding all those senses of power meant that it gave the Habsburgs great power against the French. It was just too big. And I think it proved to be so as well. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. And so I recommend to all our listeners who might want some more details to to have a look at your book, of course, Henry VIII and right. Charles V, rival monarchs and the allies. And one last thing before I let you go, Richard, is for a takeaway. So normally it's a Tudor takeaway. Right. I don't mind if this is just yeah, a 16th yeah, century fine. takeaway. So a little right. something for our listeners to go off and explore right. after the episode. Right. Well, I've got two things come to mind. One being a sort of research possibility. I've always found the British History Online absolutely valuable source uh, where you can get sort of a calendar of state papers and so on. And it's very, very easy access. Most of it is free access, although for some of the documents you do need to have a subscription. But there's so much you can get without that. I mean, for instance, all the state papers of Henry VIII, uh, foreign and domestic. It's just fascinating reading some of the correspondence that's taking place between you know, the monarchs, between their advisors. Also in there, there's lots of little, little detail about you know, how places of England was ruled at the time. So the calendar of state papers or British history online, brilliant source. Place to visit. So I always like, been a lot of my work originally on Charles V based on visiting his places. But in England, I would actually say my two probably favourites at the moment would be a visit to the Mary Rose in Portsmouth, Henry VIII's ship that was sunk in the Solent's in 1545, just setting out to fight a possible French invasion. Fabulous visit. And I would actually recommend, if anyone goes there, to get a guided tour. Uh, I used to be a bit standbackish about guided tours, but actually getting somebody who really knows that ship, that I was fascinated by the tour that I got. And another place to recommend in England be later Tudor, very late Tudor actually, we visit Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire. Best of Hardwick's mansion, if you like, very late Elizabethan, fabulous place to visit. And again, it's National Trust property. And again, I'd recommend if you're lucky enough to get a guided tour there as well. Well worth it. Wonderful. Well, They're wonderful yeah. recommendations. And I believe the Mary Rose has just actually launched a new visitor experience. So perfect time. It's fabulous. Yeah, it is. yeah perfect yeah. time to go yeah. and visit. Thank you so much for taking the time to come oh. on the podcast and talk to us about your work. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>